listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, you are listening to episode 88 of the Howie Games Part A, an episode that I reckon will put a smile on your face and a spring in your step because this week's guest, to use a good old Aussie term, is a bloody legend. This man has absolutely blown the field away. Kurt Fernley, here he is, here folks. He is, it ladies. is an 11th record breaking win from the boy from Carcor. Kurt Fernley does it again, the Ausday 10K champion for a record breaking 11th time. What a star, what a champion, what a race, and what a win. Kurt Fernley is a phenomenal athlete, a Paralympic legend who, when racing, pretty much was defined by his iron will and absolute refusal absolute refusal to give up ever. Now, for those of you that are listening that like to train, his explanations of his heart rate levels when competing in his most successful event, the marathon, will blow your socks right off your feet. It's extraordinary. But more than that, the thing that really appeals to me about Kurt is that he is a man who seeks out adventure in a world where adventure seems less and less on the radar of most people. Sydney to Hobart, Kokoda, Antarctica, the man loves challenges, big challenges. Enjoy the story of the remarkable Kurt Fernley AO. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Kurt Fernley, technical guru. <laughs> Welcome to the Howie Games. We're, you're our first remote operation. Just run me through the last five minutes from where you're sitting. <laughs> it was it was lots of cuss words. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I like doing a lot of my work on Apple, except for if it has to like any if it has to work with any other computer system, any other software, then it all falls apart. But it's it's had something to do with me. Um, juggling my coffee and <laughs> juggling my coffee and running through the house trying to uh, trying to make it work all while trying to be quiet because my my two year old sleeping up the other end of the house so it was well shamozzle, it's mate. funny that your two year old's uh, sleeping because my eight year old who you'll hear from later on walked past and I had you on full volume trying to get it sorted and he heard <laughs> some of what was coming out of Newcastle and I was telling him about you this morning how you're a great Australian and he just raised his eyes eyebrows and move straight past. <laughs> well, he's, he's going to stitch me up later on, so <laughs> I, I'll, I'll sleep all right. Look, I've never, I've, I've never claimed to be a great Australian who doesn't swear. So. <laughs> the other thing I need to note now that we're doing this remotely, I can see over your back shoulder and there is a whopping big painting of you. I don't know if it's above your bedroom, mate. I don't, I don't know where it is, but she's a big painting of yourself back there. Mate, yeah, it's, it's so I've, oh, it's a picture. It's a picture. It's a painting that Arne Doe did a few years ago. And Arne, Arne is hands down. He is the nicest guy in the world. And, um, look, uh, so... I'm actually, I don't know, I'm brushing in here already. (laughs) Uh, Look, it's one of those things that uh, at the end of your time you get all of this kind of memorabilia and all of these really, like, amazing things, but uh, most of them them you don't put out. But um, this is something that 
spending a couple of on a couple of hours with Arne, who who is a legend of a bloke and um my wife likes it so then it's uh, it's something that we actually we actually keep but just had I known that I was going to be doing meetings on the on the blower in my office, I wouldn't have put it on the back wall because it's really creepy. I'm going to have to see. Spin. I, I took down all the photos of me that I've got here just to keep it a bit more low profile. Um, I hey, just mate, try I, to intimidate people, mate. That's all. That's all. I know if we went on a tour of your house, you got like fifty of these up. There's just a shrine to Kurt up there in Newcastle. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're going to have to go easy on those coffees that you are. These coffees that you're drinking there. Yeah. If I keep you going for an hour and a half and you keep drinking those piccolos. No, mate, I'm in. I'm okay. in. I, yeah. Right. I've got the bottle, the bottle to fill up if we, if we need to. So okay. only, we're only shooting from the chest up. It's all good. Right. Well, that's good. You tell me if you need a spell because the rate you're consuming those coffees is concerning me a little bit. Let's um, let's start from the start. Um, I, I'm tremendously... Um, I'll be honest, honoured that you've come on the show. Um, it's funny it came about because you hit me up last week about how you're going to do your podcasts <laughs> remotely and I pretty much said, well, I'll tell you if you come on my podcast. <laughs> so that's how, that's how we got you here. So I'm still trying to figure it out because I can't <laughs> I can't do it on, I, like I said at the beginning of the, the previous run, I, yep. I, I can't get my desktop to make it work and there is just also there's so much about sitting down in a podcast and and being in the same kind yeah. of space as someone. So yep. trying to see whether or not you could actually get that same real feel, but it's good. It's just going to create its uh, it's going to have its complications as well. But how good's podcasting? Like I, the the chance to sit down and have a real long in depth conversation with someone, you just you do not get that opportunity anymore. And I've I've loved it, mate. We will get to your podcast, um, which I mentioned in the intro, Tiny Island, because uh, someone in my family has a question for you about that later on, um, which I've listened to a few episodes. Congratulations. It's, it's, a, it's, a ripping, it's a ripping opportunity to tell yarns. And that's the thing I like about podcasts is sitting down and, and having a chat with someone for an hour and a half. And that's what I'm going to do with you now. So where does it start? What, um, what's the best way to start with you? What, what's your first memory? And that, that might be a tough one to answer. Cast your mind back. We'll get to where you grew up. But what's the first thing you can remember, do you reckon? Uh, first thing I can remember is my grandma. Um, she lived, we lived, there were five kids and granny lived with us in a three-bedroom house. Um, my grandma cuddling me and she's rubbing my feet and saying that they were... Uh, she's rubbing my feet and telling me that I'm perfect. Right. <laughs> you know, she is. She died when I was only about five, but she is one of the most. Uh, she's still one of the most pivotal people in my life, and it's funny there yeah, that that would be. It's just a a really warm, really warm memory. So where did you grow up? For those that don't know, you're not a man that grew up in the city by any stretch of the imagination. By the way, I read your book, um, Pushing the Limits, which is it's a few years back now and there's been a few more adventures, but if anyone wants a good read, um, it's kept me going for the last four days. So congratulations on the book. But your description of where you grew up, I didn't realise you're a real. You're, you're like a real country bumpkin. <laughs> you're a real out in the sticks man. Yeah, mate, yeah, I'm probably proper hillbilly. Um <laughs> 
We grew up, it's, it's out past Bathurst, it's in uh, Central West or Wiradjuri country in, in New South Wales and it's a town of 200 people called Karkor. It's down in a tiny little valley. It's got a, a, a river that runs through it called the Balubula. It's uh, a brown trout and rainbow trout territory and it's, it's cattle country. It's really, it's, it's good quality land and it's a lovely place. You talked about um, obviously stories you've been told down the track by by your mum and your dad uh, and your family about when you were born, and mm. attitudes were very different. What are you? What are you? What are you? Twenty eight, twenty nine now? <laughs> <laughs> 30, 30, 39, you? mate. Okay. My youthful, my youth. Right. Because because we're looking at each other through this <laughs> app. Right. I think I'm. I'm. It's 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 given being generous to me, but no. <laughs> So for, mate. For 40 years ago, attitudes were different in all ranges of life. Um, tell me the story of you coming into the world in a small hospital. Yeah, well, mum and dad, they, I was their fifth kid and they, they weren't really, um, they weren't expecting. There was no no variation on, on mum's pregnancy that she had she'd experienced as yet. And then she got to the doctors and, uh, and went through a prolonged labour and I came out I came out blue and and obviously uh, missing half of my spine and um, and uh, yes, yeah, screaming because the doctor had broken my legs and something oh. else as I was I was being uh, as I was being born. So mum and dad were uh, were scared. The doctors said that we've we've never seen anything like this. We don't expect this to be a successful birth. We don't expect him to, to make it through the next period of time. So name him and name him quickly. And I got to Kurt, uh, Kurt Harry. And then, uh, and then, yeah, mum was quickly rushed down to, uh, to Sydney and, and the process went of just figuring out who I was. So growing up, what you're growing up on a farm? Yeah, we were in a, we had uh, we had about ten acres just on the edge of town. Um, when mum and dad they they brought me back home, you know they were offered alternatives, places for me to be institutionalised or places for me to be looked after because we weren't the most financial family. So I think people thought go home and look after your your four kids and and we'll sort this one out. But mum and dad uh, they always. They always were of the this. The, there was no alternative. That I was the youngest family, and it was it was just the place that I deserved to be. And you know, they took me home, and it was a the the, the town of four hundred pretty much took ownership of me as well. And there would have been an overwhelming desire, I guess, of mum and dad to shut up shop and close up the blinds and you know dig in with the trenches. But everybody everybody let them know that I was a son of that town, you know, I was, it's one of the beautiful things about small towns is that there is a true sense of community in it where people take ownership of the, the upbringing of the other kids. And, and I have, I have no doubts that I was given more of that because I was born with, with, like I was born with lumbar sacrilegenesis because I was born with half my spine missing that everybody bought into who I was. And, you know, I was, it kind of created a bit of an idyllic setting really it was it was it's a lot of a lot of good memories for me and yeah it's it was uh just a real warm place mate really warm and loving place to be in busy household lots mm. lots going on 
But, sounded uh, rough and tumble too. It sounded um, no quarter given to anyone in the family at any particular time. If there was challenges to be set, whether it was you or your four brothers and sisters or your mum and dad, she was on. She was constantly on. Yeah, mate. Yeah, the the brothers were fairly. Uh, the brothers were fairly. Um, well, everyone, everyone was. You're you're gonna you're gonna be a part of this, and you're gonna get your hands dirty, and and. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how honest I can be. How honest can I be, Howie? Honest. Honest. <laughs> this is the great thing about podcasts. You can be yeah, I know. you can be very honest. There is this joke. As honest that, as you want to be. There is this joke that I was told uh, by one of my brothers. And yeah. if you think I'm a, I'm twelve years old and uh I first we first saw the Paralympics and my brother we slept three of us in the same room, said, Hey, what's the what's better than a Paralympic gold medal? And I went, oh, nothing. He goes, walking. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was nothing. There was, there was absolutely nothing, nothing. No cotton wool. Everything was fair game. But I knew that they would also walk over hot coals for me. Like they were the sort of people that, that you, <laughs> you, you were going to cop it, you know, like you were going to walk with us for... 10Ks and you are going to crawl behind us while we go rabbiting over the other side of the hill and while we go fishing and whatever it is that we're doing, you're going to be there. But you're also, you might crawl 5K of it, but you're also going to be on my back for 5K. And as long as you work hard, then then we're with you, you know. And and these guys, the the whole family, that the, they are they are the most important people in the world to me and, and there is... There is nothing that I could, they could do that would offend me in that way because that's that's just who we were. So, uh, I, it's I, I don't I've never really spoken about that joke because one of, I'm not going to say which brother <laughs> said it because oh, they were no, like, don't put him in it. Do not tell say that I ever said that. Anyway, I, I'm glad I'm glad you told me that because I was thinking about this this morning as to. The language we use. And your family have grown up surrounded by you in that situation and you being in a wheelchair and making jokes about it and knowing what to say and when to say it. The general public, I feel the same. How do we go about the language of people with a disability? Like I, I, That's a bloody four-hour answer. I know that. Well, Which, one... Please never say that joke that I just told right. you to anyone. Okay. I'm not anyone. going with that. Unless I'm not going with that. Unless your family and then expect the clip. Um, look, but you know, like, yeah. like you, you look, don't want to say something. I, I don't want to meet someone in the street, anybody of any walk of life and say something that upsets them. But I generally know the boundaries. Yeah, I would say that the, the safe ground is if you meet anyone with a disability, no matter what disability it is, you're not going to offend them by saying how you're going. Right. You yeah, might okay. offend them. You might offend them by saying what's wrong with you. You might offend them by by asking something specific about that person's particular disability because they may have been asked that a hundred times before that day, and all they want to do is go out and get their shopping. 
Yeah. They, you know, like they, they are they are questions that are posed to people with disabilities each time that you wander around the streets and they can be pretty frustrating. A kid comes up and asks, hey, why are you in a wheelchair? I have that conversation and it's good. It's like it's fine. Um because my kids ask that, they've been around disability their entire life and they will still walk up with someone who can't see and just be like, hey, what's the matter with you, you know? And it's, Harry, don't ask what's the matter, just ask, hey, how you going? Yeah, how you okay. going? Meet it, it, people with disabilities, no matter what, what variation on experience they have, they want a connection with the the, uh, the greater community, just like everyone else, but they want it to be on an even, even, even plane, no matter what, no matter what your experience is, pity is like pity or feeling like you are put on a pedestal, either one of those is cancerous. You don't want to feel like you are the inspiration of the community or you don't want to feel like you are the pity of the community. You just want to feel like you are sitting with your your non-disabled equal and having a yarn or if you go down to the shops or you just want to feel as if the person walking by is your is your peer is your neighbor is your family and whenever i uh, whenever i get the opportunity to speak about disability i try and get that across is that each and every person just deserves the dignity of feeling equal to each other that's a um that's the strength of a four-hour answer in two minutes. So you've done bloody well with that answer, I reckon. <laughs> so, so tell me about the um, – obviously your wheelchair has been a massive part of your life because it, in combined with your will and strength, has taken you to Olympic glory. Tell me about your journey with a wheelchair and, and where it sits in your life. Wheelchair is – Wheelchair, it often feels like life. It's funny. I I dream wow. I dream of myself crawling. I I don't dream. If I dream of myself, I'm not in my chair. But <laughs> I think of my chair as a part of my, a part of who I am. Um, like I took the chair. I took the chair across Kokoda. I, I've only had it taken away from me from <laughs> uh, taken away from me on the the Sydney to Hobart, seeing it go away and be put in a in a back of a truck. But for me, people see, see wheelchairs as something that's confining. I see it as something that gives relationships. It gives life to you. It gives you, you know, it gives you speed. It gives you until you go to the farm and then it's useless. <laughs> so, so then it then it sits sits at the gate and you figure it out from there. But, yeah, the wheelchair for me is not a confining thing. That's when, when people write that you're confined to a wheelchair, it's like, are you kidding? Like the, the wheelchair is the wheelchair is like a Formula One car if you can actually, you know, if you're able to, to, to direct it in the right place. In, in the right hands, which which yours have been. Hey, I, I said in the intro of this, which you haven't heard, but if you go back and listen to yourself, which you might because uh. you've got a painting on the wall behind yourself. So there's a fair chance, <laughs> there's a fair chance you might. Well, I said that um, there's the, the thing that I admire you tremendously an athlete, as an athlete, but what I admire more is um, your ability in the modern world to chase adventure. And there's, I feel there's not enough adventure in the modern world. So I want to get to some of those adventures because – 
um, adventure and the ability to get stuck in absolutely fascinates me. But before that, indulge me with your sporting journey. When does your chair, going from what you said was life, when when does it go from being an A to B operation to an A to B as quick as you can operation? 13, I was at uh, 12 or 13 years old. I was still playing footy, rugby league in yep. the back paddock of my, uh, of, of mum and dad's place and uh, something came on television and I'd always loved sport, mate. I was a sporting nut. Um, you know, I, as a kid I wanted to be boony. Did you? Know, yeah, yeah. You got the, the facial old, hair for it. <laughs> mate, the old, the, he, he had personality, he had, yeah. uh, he had something something about him. He was probably the shortest <laughs> member of the team, so I was, <laughs> I was all about that. And, Didn't you drink uh, cans like him? No, mate, no, I drink... <laughs> I drink 50 beers a year, I reckon, over, <laughs> <laughs> but they just happen to be over two nights, I think. <laughs> Where he does it, he does it in one sitting. But yep. look, yep. I uh, I always wanted to be involved in sport, but yeah, I was playing around in the front front paddock of the the house, and Dad ran out and he put his arm around my uh, arm around underneath my armpits. He lifted me up, he carried me inside, and he plonked me down in front of the telly, and I saw a wheelchair racing. And it changed my world. I uh, I had never really seen real sport before for me, you know, like I'd never seen sport or experienced sport on an even playing field because I was crawling around at that point in time. I was playing fullback and anyone that would uh, lose track of me on the on the footy field, I'd throw the old swinging arm across the shins and I'd try and bring him down that way. Oh, and The ankle tap. The old ankle tap, mate, yeah, <laughs> or just try and get in the road and trip them up. But then I saw this thing, and there was these were wheelchair races. These were the, the these were powerful blokes, and they were pushing around and hitting speeds that I'd never seen before. And I just knew that that's where I wanted to go. And I think my teacher spent about six months after that making phone calls, and she brought wheelchairs into my school, into into uh, Blaney Public, and she would sit down. All of my class, all of my, uh, or most of my school, actually, she would run, you know, classes all day, and and kids would jump into wheelchairs and play basketball all day, and I got to play every single kid in the school, and she would then spend six months calling around to find an athletics person to speak to, and her lunchtime, her hours, her time, her energy was spent in giving me something more, and. Um, she would find a number that would have Andrew Dawes attached to it and he was uh, working for Wheelchair Sports New South Wales. He would come out to the school that I was I was at and uh, he, would, he would then coach me for 25 years after that and teach me. He was an able-bodied guy, never pushed a wheelchair before in his life, but he would then coach me, uh, find me crawling around the hills of Karkor and take me on a couple of decades run and... Um, Mate, as soon as I got that wheelchair in that period of time, my, my town, the 200 people, they raised $10,000. My mum and dad tried to stop them and they said, stay out of it, it's between us and the boy. And those 200 farmers put their hand in their pocket and paid paid money that they couldn't afford to give me, to give me opportunity. And as soon as I got that, they also brought me a ticket to go over to the US and my mum and dad would drive me down to the airport probably four or five months after that and I, I I would jump on a plane and disappear and 
feels like 25 years, like 25 years mm. later, mate, it, it just was a, a whirlwind. But the moment that I got that chair was the moment where I knew I was meant to go. Back to Kurt in a moment. We are dropping pods at random times at the moment, trying to crank up production, as I said at the start. So for the time being, it won't be the usual two-week wait. Good news if you're enjoying the show. But to not miss out on a new episode, please hit subscribe on your podcast player. It takes two seconds. It does not cost a cent and helps the show grow enormously. Alrighty, ripper. So coming really soon, we are taking a cricket journey back to the 80s, the time of the infamous underarm ball, the Kiwis in brown and beige, rude moustaches with former Kiwi wicketkeeper and now for mine, the best in the business in cricket commentary, Ian Smith. I made a massive, massive mistake which will live with me forever. In the World Cup rugby final in 2011, I interviewed the losing captain Thierry Doucetois from France, who ended up being the player of the tournament. He's a fantastic rugby player. And uh, for some reason, when Grant Nisbet, who is our host broadcaster, threw down to me for the interview, he'd never said, here's Ian Smith with Thierry Doucetois. Uh, here's, here's Ian Smith. And I said, yeah, I'm down here with Thierry Henry. <laughs> from Arsenal. Who <laughs> 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 just happened to be really one of the great French football players of the time. Yes. My God, father. And I tried, Howie, I tried to get out of it. And halfway through his answer, he, he came and he was very polite about the whole deal. Halfway through his answer, and I, I felt like, so yeah, and Thierry Henry would have been very proud of that too. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept, the old shovel kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper. I copped it, man. Did I cop it from that? But they still hate me in Paris, I'll tell you that. That's Smithy coming up really soon on the show. Alrighty, back to Kurt. So when, when you first started training, so you're coming off a base of zero. What were your first couple of training sessions like, trying to make the chair go fast for any period of time? Mate, I was rubbish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, and I was rubbish for quite a long time. Um, right. I was great at crawling hills, you know. Yep. You put me in a competition where I get to crawl up and down, you know, paddocks of long grass or climb over barbed wire fences and I would win. I haven't but, seen that one in the Olympics as yet. <laughs> put it in there, mate. I'm right. back in the game. <laughs> um, but I was rubbish and I was rubbish pretty much my entire junior career and um, it took me till I was 17 where it really clicked for me and uh, I... What clicked? Physically I or left, mentally? Mentally. Right. I, just, I left home. I... Finished school and I I left home immediately and um, drove down to Sydney as soon as the final exam uh, finished. Drove down to Sydney and landed on my coach's doorstep and I said I'm I'm in you know and uh, he didn't let me race another junior race from there. There were all these races that I was excited about winning as a junior and he said if you're in you're in long haul and I don't I don't want you to be winning the under-18s or the under-19s, I, I, I want to get you long-term and, you know, I don't want to get you used to winning. And, yeah, mate, it just changed everything. I had, you know, a few bucks in the bank and, you know, maybe five or 600 bucks in the bank and um, I committed to staying down in Sydney and I got a job at a, at a leagues club working on the front door. I was 17, I couldn't go in, but I was checking IDs and IDs from... <laughs> 
six or seven o'clock at night through to midnight or two in the morning and uh, and uh, then I'd go back home and I'd train from six till nine and then from two till 4.30 or something and then line up and do it again. But just throwing everything in and jumping in, jumping into the deep end there and just every part of me was committed to it. That's that's what changed. You talked about going to America. Just, just, uh, just for a visual, you're sitting in Newcastle, I'm in Bowen Heads, and the man that technically operates this show, Darcy, he can't hear us at the moment, but, but he is there. Do you reckon he's having a hot dog for lunch? <laughs> Do you think that's a hot dog that he's just hoeing into? Oh, he is. He's passionate. That's a, that's a bloody hot dog he's having, isn't it? And he's devouring it. <laughs> you bastard. He's having a hot dog. Anyway, anyway, we talked about going to America. Um, I read, um, as I said, I loved your book. I don't want to go through every race with you because I hope you're here for three days. Oh, I've lost you now. Well, Are you still there? Yeah, mate. I've lost your picture. Hang on. What'd you press? Yeah, I got gotcha. you. There you go again. There you go. Back There's in the you. game. There's you with your picture in the background. Yep, I can see you again <laughs> perfectly. And mate, you went to Europe and you went to a place called Notville. Is it not? How do you pronounce it? Yeah, it's Notville. Notville. Okay, so you're in Switzerland, you're out on the roads training, and this is when I started to think that you're a bit of a loose cannon because you described being out training and having an unfortunate incident with another vehicle on the road. I read that and I thought, wow, this bloke's got a screw loose. Can you just talk me through what was going on there? Yes, 17 years old again, just excited to be racing with the big boys and made massive leaps, um, going to take a corner. There were probably six or seven of us in a pack and I had just surged to the front. I'd never pushed on the course before, surged to the front. Everyone was slowing down, a bit of excitement, didn't realise a corner, 90-degree corner coming up, took it too fast, lost control, other side of the road, smashing straight into the... uh, the front bonnet bouncing onto the windscreen of an oncoming car and then Jeez. rolling rolling off the bonnet again and then onto the ground and broke my wrist uh, on the windscreen, my nose on the windscreen, um, bounced onto the ground, broke my leg, um, snapped my chair in half <laughs> and then uh, somehow crawled, dragging my chair off the road across on the incoming traffic. So, but just, I was concussed, I was out mm. of it. And then lying on the grass there, um, lying on the grass there, kind of looking up. And then all the other all the other guys in the pack just circling me and making sure that I was, stayed awake. And then um, the mother of a girl, little baby, who was in the car that I ran into, um, she sat there and hugged me and waited for the ambulance to come and... Yeah, mate, I was just just a kid and excited and wanting to prove myself, but it's those things that you're doing all that, but there's no wisdom there, you know, like there's no caution there and it, and it stung me that day. I'm fascinated by um, the mental side of what you do and I want to get to heart rate because I had a discussion with Cadell Evans on this show about heart rate to blew my mind and I read what you were talking about in heart rate in the marathon. Before I get to what's involved in racing in a marathon, I just want to bring up, if you'll indulge me, a couple of races first. So you had your first, correct me when I get this wrong, you had your first marathon in Sydney prior to the Sydney 2000 Games, which you won. Host City Marathon against Saul Mendoza, the Mexican athlete of the 20th century. And you toasted him. You dusted him off. 
Just. I don't just. care. I don't care how much you've been by. It was so, it was, man, it was awesome. It was one of the, you know, first ever marathon and you're just naive and, yeah, it was a cracking race. So you get to the Sydney version of the marathon. You talked in your book about hitting the wall, for want of a better term, not physically but literally, where you ran out of steam and, in your words, passed out. Which is black. Like okay. that's all that went. So you just out. You just, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're yelling, your, your head's, your head's, you're trying to get it all into one direction, right? Like your body's doing its job and your head is just screaming and yep. then you just stop and you've stopped. The chair's not rolling forwards anymore. You start kind of rolling backwards and you, it's like you've woken up. Um, and, yeah, I just remember I was pushing up Anzac Bridge, so it's probably about 27 kilometres into the race. Again, first ever Paralympics and, yeah, you just, I was in about fourth place at that point in time and everything just stopped and you regroup and I think I finished at about 36th or something that day. It's the, the longest the longest 10K of any race that I would do from then on but a valuable lesson, a valuable lesson that day that, you need to be on the edge, but you can never step a foot over. So so your book is called Pushing the Limits, and this is the bit that I find fascinating about you as an athlete, mate, that I really want to explore. How physically and mentally are you able to push yourself into a position where your body actually for a very short period of time shuts down? What is required mainly mentally to be able to get to that point? Yeah, well, I think mentally... Yeah, do you understand the question? Yeah, yeah. Mentally, I am very, very strong. Yes. Mentally, that is, I will bury myself, you know, and, and I... What does that mean? Push, what does that mean, you'll bury yourself? Th- that that means that I will cause more pain to myself in a race, in that setting, than what, and you tell that to yourself, I'll, I'll cause more pain to myself in that setting than any one person can can cause. You know, I will go into deficit. I will I will find a happy place in there, you know, like. Where's I, the pain come? Where's the pain come? Where's it hit The pain you? starts in your stomach and it starts with a, you can start with a nausea, then, you know, then you get the muscular pain as well. The, you know, you'll get the. You get the overall fatigue. You'll, you know, it, you'll get the cramping at some point in time. But I've always, I've always, the reason why, the reason why I stopped, the reason why everything stopped in Sydney was that I was too young and I hadn't had enough training. <laughs> that was, that was, that was it. I, I, I just was. I was 19 years old. I was exhausted emotionally, physically from a games that was. Uh, just, you know, a kid from the bush who wouldn't have raced in front of 100 people before a month earlier raced in front of 118,000 and <laughs> a couple of silver medals and, like, I was just, I was busted. And and then that day that I was had the ability that that strength was still screaming, the, the drive was still there, but the body the body just faltered um, 
and it and it it didn't fall again. You know, I, I just think that that moment there, it's funny. Like the me- most memorable moment of that day isn't finishing. It isn't. You know, it's just kind of black it out or whatever. It is ten minutes after I crossed the finish line when I pushed into the middle of the cool down track, and I tipped my wheelchair over backwards, and I'm crying, and I, and I'm crying and crying. I'm I'm just done. Like I'm just broken. And Gavin Fulsham, he's a he's a Kiwi wheelchair racer. He come over next to me and. He just said to me, Kurt, what you did over the last two years, you're 19 years old, I've never seen it before, I'm just so proud of you, you are the future of this sport, you will make this race your own in four years' time. And Gabs was a legend and, and, and sometimes we underestimate the impact that we can have on people because that I wanted to prove him right from then on in, you know. Like I, I'd only raced two marathons before and the second one broke me and then that conversation, that conversation just, it wrote the script for me for the next four years. So skip forward four years. You go to Athens. Uh, I don't know who I was talking about to this on the show, but I had the good fortune of being in Athens in the media village where I, for the first 10 days, had no glass in my windows and <laughs> the toilet door only opened about ten centimeters, then hit the toilet and had to squeeze through. What was your, what was your setup like in Athens? <laughs> mine was a bit dodgy, mate. You know what? I was on the I was on the bottom floor of a four story building. Right. I, uh, you 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 didn't want you didn't want to be the second person to use the shit of that morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have been in the same place. <laughs> Mate, if, if you woke up, if you woke up, every morning was a good morning that you didn't have a soup going across the bathroom floor. <laughs> like I loved, <laughs> I loved Athens. I, like it was, it was the Wild West, like literally the Wild West. Our, yes. our training track was, was about a kilometre outside of the village. We had to push from the village into the training track and wild dogs would chase up. <laughs> <laughs> God love the Greeks. God love the Greeks. It was amazing. Like everyone was lovely, and I had one of the one of the best experiences of my life. But it had some uh, it had some quirks to it. But yeah, you know what? The games are meant to. The the games can never be owned by. It can never be owned by Sydney or 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 London. You know, like games have to have the flavor of where it's at. You know, Mm. you know, you need to be taking the games. You need to be taking the games to challenging locations and experiencing every part of this place. Otherwise, otherwise, people will just stop watching. Mm. I couldn't agree more. It was the most uh, disorganised games I've been to, but probably my favourite because the people were just so, um, wow. That's the first time I've seen an Olympic marathon as well and the speed that those people run when they're flying past you um, blows your mind. So, But Athens for you is a special place because for the first time, you're the best in the world in in the Olympic arena. Yeah, mate, it's uh, that moment when you win your first ever gold medal is something you never forget. It's something that you that know, was like, the five k, yeah. That was the five k. Although, yep. you know, it's such a strange experience to win to win a gold, but then have 
two races to go after and you're part of a team. So I got that gold medal in the 5,000. It was a great race. It was, you know, I'd got about four fourth places in the lead up to that. Just could not, could not make the, make the next step up in the, in the 15 or the five. And, uh, and then I got that gold medal nine or 10 o'clock at night, but you're racing again the next morning, the next night, the next morning. So you, you put it a you put it aside and it's like okay start from scratch again and woke up the next morning and was a part of the relay that we that we got the um we got the silver medal in and then the next morning i think we got to the hotel at about 11 o'clock at night and um the start for the marathon was 5 or 6 o'clock the next morning and it, that feels like my first gold medal because that was that was the first time that you actually got to enjoy that moment. The first, huh. the first gold medal I feel doesn't exist. <laughs> the the 5k, it it's all it's it's kind of I don't really have any memory of it except for me telling myself put it to the side, you know, put it to the side, put it to the side. You got to wake up tomorrow, put it to the side. Penrith Stadium is the venue for the conclusion of the marathon. It starts at Marathon, this famous course, 42.195 kilometres, and Kurt Fernley from Australia goes in the men's T54 category. And then, but that marathon, I remember coming to in an ice bath and everyone's laughing and crying around me and people are telling me that I've won the race and, you know, you're just ecstatic. It's the first time that you feel that moment that you've been able to create this vacuum for the people that you love and my mum and dad and my cousins are there and everything is removed from that world by joy and it is just a beautiful moment. Like it is, it's rare, rare, you know. We, we touched on it before about pain. So you won, you won 30, I think 35, 36 plus marathons around 10 different countries, that, to, those that aren't aware. Talk me through what's the key to a marathon in a wheelchair, how long it takes, where the pain hits, and you talked about the happy place. Like where, where can the happy place mentally be? What's involved physically, mentally, and probably spiritually for you, I reckon, in a marathon distance event? Marathon marathon you you will hit a point that is a level of discomfort that is pretty pretty challenging you might hit that in the first couple of minutes of a marathon if required if you're trying to be the person that's the the best in the world at that particular day your competitor might just dictate to you that you need to hurt now they might sprint off the start line you could never be you 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 have to take each and every race and you think about the things that you can't control, but just be ready to adjust and adapt to everything else in the world. I would always treat a marathon as if whenever anything challenging would happen to a marathon, I will own it and I will be better at everyone in the world to it. Hmm. If there's cobblestones in a marathon, that will be where I'll attack. If there's a hill, I attack. If somebody, I would never take fluid on a on a marathon because... I would always, if I saw somebody drink in a marathon, I would attack. 
You know, if there was any advantage that could be taken, I would take it. Well, um, I think that's taking it too far. I nah, think that's mate. just going beyond the edge a bit. <laughs> you didn't have to like me, mate. <laughs> no, no, true. Look, in a, in a marathon, you just... You know, if you are, there is, there is, these are, these are some of my best mates in the world. I would be ruthless to for an hour and a half. And that's how long a marathon takes for a chair on average. Quickest marathon I did was an hour, 18 minutes. And I think it was 48 seconds. Um, that was, um, that was second placed in Boston where the winner would break the world record in one hour, 18 minutes and 48 seconds as well, but a metre a metre away from me. But you are, you can be on the rivet as in you can be, you can be in pain from the gun and then I actually would kind of like it if people set the pace early because I wanted the pace to be high, I wanted everyone to be hurting and then I felt like I had the best chance of winning. The races where it was a bit more comfortable, um, where the courses were flatter, they were never, never my, my my strongest kind of run. I wanted, I wanted there to be challenge in there. Heart rate, that, that's the bit that blew me away in in your book of everything you did when you described the heart rate level you got to and the consistency of time you kept it at. Blew my socks off, mate. Heart rate, uh, the max I ever got was two hundred and thirteen in two thousand and six World Champs, um, but the the highest average that I got was in Gold Coast um, for 2018. It was one. It was either 194 or 195 beats per minute for 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 an hour and 32 minutes average. It was uh, cresting out with about 800 meters to go in the final climb, and it was only a tiny little bridge, but it felt like it was a mountain at that point in time. It was 211 beats per minute, but the average for that race was just brutal. It was. You know, it was damage, damage, uh, damaging point. But it was, I kept on saying that that that's what will win it. You know, that's what will win it. You Is know, that you, your mantra? Like, where, where do you go? Like, for those of us that go for a run and you get your heart rate monitor, you get to 170, you're working, you get to 180. Like, the numbers you're talking are Cadell Evans' numbers. So he had a description of pain and dealing with it. How did you deal with it? Because it, it must be mental at that point, is it? Well, you're just, you're trying to, the, the pain is irrelevant. I <laughs> know it's silly, it sounds stupid <laughs> to say that, but so whenever I would picture it in my head, I would try and create like a, try and create a voice or an idea that was louder than that. So oh, there would be points where I would be yelling at myself or like there was- Internally um, or physically out loud? Physically, there was a race that I remember uh, I was doing it in parts in the Gold Coast, but not a lot of parts because there were too many people that I knew on the side of the road. <laughs> and also I didn't need to yell because in the Gold Coast I was I was forcing myself to look up and seeing people yell at me and I could grab hold of that. But there was a race in New York where I was broken. Um, just remember waking up during that race and I was so disconnected from the discomfort that I remember kind of waking up and I'm crying and I am just yelling at myself through gritted teeth and I'm saying again and again and again I'm just yelling who are you who are you and like I don't need I don't need to respond to that like if I hear that if I hear that question I know who I am I'm I'm extremely strong I'm extremely resilient and I'll never give up 
if there's something that I want, if if there's something that I that I'm looking for out there and it's only a matter of physicality that I'm gonna get there, then then it's just a question of just time, I guess. And you know, that asking me asking me that question, it was like a trigger that I would be able to fall back on from then on. And you know, whenever it started to hurt, you'd either grab the most painful memories that you've been through in the past and utilize it, or you would uh, or you would just create this thing that was going to drive you that's louder than any sort of pain. And for me, it was something along those lines, just saying that again and again, who are you? Who are you? And it, it's like the pain would just disappear. It's like it would give you something else to focus on and then you would just hurt yourself more. It's a phenomenal description and I can see you in this world we live going Yeah, I kind of place. I'm fired yeah. up, man. Yeah, I hear can, it. I, I can see that and I can see the look on your face. Put me on the put, field, coach. <laughs> get out there. <laughs> That's the end of Kurt Fernley Part A. See you on the flip side. Listener.